Well, it's nice to see you out tonight. We're going to be in Jeremiah 32 tonight. It's a humdinger of a passage. There's a word you don't hear used much anymore. It's a great word, humdinger. I don't even know what it means, but it sounds good. And we used it. So before we get into the 32nd chapter tonight of Jeremiah, let's pray. Father, thank you for your people who've come out in the middle of the week to partake of the Word of God. It's always a privilege to partake of the Scriptures. Lord, we thank you for giving your Word to us in the English language, that we can read it and understand it. We pray that as we go through this text tonight, you'll minister to our minds and hearts uh, with what this passage is designed to do. And we will thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever made an emotional, illogical purchase of something, and shortly after you make it, you say, well, now, why did I buy that? I asked that question at our prayer breakfast last Friday. One of our guys immediately responded, yeah, I've done a couple of things. I bought a new car one time, and ultimately, when I thought about it, I thought, why in the world did I buy it? And the same person said, one time I bought some land and later determined the land's no good, And I thought, what in the world did I buy that for? So it happens. We've probably all done something like that. Well, don't feel bad if you've ever done that, because the same kind of thing happened to Jeremiah. But in his case, the one telling him to buy something was God. And even though God told him to make the purchase, clearly after Jeremiah did it, he's having doubts about it. And he's thinking, what in the world did I do that for? Now what you see in this 32nd chapter is God tells Jeremiah to trust him and purchase something that appears to be totally illogical in order to make a prophetic point about the certainty of the prophetic program of God. Now that's what true faith does do sometimes. True faith sometimes seems illogical to those who don't understand the word of God. For example, sacrificial living, sacrificial giving doesn't seem logical to those who don't trust the Lord. But let's set the context for this story that we're going to look at tonight. Jeremiah had just woke up from an amazing, positive, revelatory dream. We saw it last week that left him pleasant and happy about everything that was ultimately going to happen to Israel. It was a futuristic dream that he had. He saw, you'll remember, a time when Israel is going to be fully restored to the land. She will be in a brand new relationship with God. I'm not sure how much time had elapsed since he had that dream until what we're going to look at tonight. But obviously, this joy and elation that he had is going to be short-lived. Now, you would think that Jeremiah would have been a well-received and honored man as a prophet of God. He had built himself quite a reputation at this point for probably about nine years. He was known as a man who told the truth of God, both negative and positive. He told people if they would turn from their sin, if they would turn to the Lord, they would experience the grace and mercy and forgiveness of God. But he also said, if you don't do that, you're going to experience negative things. He said, that's the reason you're in captivity. The reason that you're in captivity is because you refuse to obey God. And Jeremiah didn't make a lot of friends with the clergy group. As he's been proclaiming this for now about nine years, people and leaders of Israel, whom God through Jeremiah called stupid, did not like what Jeremiah was saying, but Jeremiah always told the truth, even when it wasn't popular. So as a result of that, he finds himself in jail. 
But God was with Jeremiah and protecting him and revealing things to him and preserving him and even prospering him. There are three simple parts to this interesting chapter, and it is an interesting chapter. The first part is, Jeremiah is in prison for proclaiming the truth of the word of God, and while he's in prison, a cousin of his shows up and wants to sell him some land. I want you to notice verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, according to verse 1, the revelatory word of God came to Jeremiah in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Zedekiah started his reign in 597 B.C., and he reigned until 586 B.C., the 10th year would put this at 587 B.C., so we are just one year before the Babylonians are going to completely destroy Jerusalem. Obviously, Jeremiah is seeing Babylon come into the land and do more and more destruction, and we're just a year away from them destroying Jerusalem. According to verse 2, we read, Now at that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard, which was in the house of the king of Judah. According to verse 2, as the Babylonians were coming against Jerusalem to seize it, Jeremiah is locked up in some jail. He's locked up in some type of house prison that was located in the king's house, obviously a place where prisoners could be locked up and guarded. Verse 3 says, Because Zedekiah king of Judah had shut him up, saying, Why do you prophesy, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am about to give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will take it. And Zedekiah king of Judah will not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but he will surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will speak with him face to face and see him eye to eye. He will take Zedekiah to Babylon, and he will be there until I visit him declares the Lord, if you fight against the Chaldeans, you will not succeed. So according to verses 3 to 5, the reason why he's locked up in prison is because he's been preaching a message that Zedekiah does not like. He's been telling Zedekiah, the judgment of God is coming against you, and the judgment of God is coming against the city. And the people didn't like the message, and of course, neither did the king. Jeremiah actually said to Zedekiah, you're going to be taken captive by the Babylonians. And if you try to fight against the Babylonians, you're not going to succeed. What ultimately happened is he was hauled to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar killed his sons in front of him so he could watch it, then put out Zedekiah's eyes. And Zedekiah did not like the message Jeremiah was proclaiming, so he put him in jail. Now, in some respects, God is kind of looking out a little bit for Jeremiah in jail because he's in a relatively safe location at this point. Plus, he's given food and drink every day, so God still cared for his faithful servant. Now, while he's in jail, something odd really happens. Starting at verse 6, And Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, is coming to you, saying, Buy for yourself my field, which is at Anathoth, for you have the right of redemption to buy it. God tells Jeremiah, while he's in prison, your cousin, whose name is Hanamel, is going to come visit you here in jail. He's going to try to sell you a field. He's from your hometown, Anathoth. He's the son of your uncle, Shalom. Now, just put this in some perspective. You're going to visit a guy in prison, and you're going to try to sell him a car. 
Or you're going to visit a guy in prison, and in this case, he's going to try to sell him some land. Now, the field was about to be in the hands of the Babylonians. Jeremiah understands the Babylonians are closing in on Jerusalem and in the area of Anathoth. And Jeremiah is in jail, so selling a field to Jeremiah is not going to be a real good investment for Jeremiah, at least you wouldn't think it would be. When some area is threatened by war, property values go down. I mean, you don't typically say, I can get good land deals in a war zone. And a few months ago, it was advertised that Detroit had such a slum area that you could buy a house for a dollar or $500. Now, how many here just rushed out to take advantage of that deal? I mean, it's not the kind of thing you typically do. Verse 7 says, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle is coming to you, saying, Buy for yourself my field, which is at Anathoth, for you have the right of redemption to buy it. Then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the guard, according to the word of the Lord, and said to me, Buy my field, please, that is in Anathoth, which is in the land of Benjamin, for you have the right of possession and the right of redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that it was the word of the Lord. According to verses 7 to 8, Jeremiah was the near relative who had the right of redemption. Now, you couldn't just, if you were in a particular tribe of Israel, sell your land to anybody who wanted to buy it. You had to kind of keep it within the family. In fact, the land had to stay within the family. We may assume that Jeremiah's uncle and cousin needed some money, but when the land is being taken by the Babylonians, it's not a good business deal for Jeremiah to buy this land when the Babylonians are going to control it. But here's the problem. God told him to do it. God told him to buy it. You know, real estate textbooks teach that if you are anticipating war or if you are looking at property that has a bunch of restrictions on it, the values are lower. Stay away from the deal. And what's happening here is they're coming into prison trying to convince Jeremiah that he should buy this land when he's locked up, when the land's about to be taken by the Babylonians. But at the end of verse 8, Jeremiah said he knew this was what God wanted him to do. He had some doubts. I mean, no realtor in his right mind would advise a client make this kind of deal. Verse 9 says, I bought the field which was at Anathoth from Hanamel, my uncle's son, and I weighed out the silver for him, 17 shekels of silver. According to verse 9, Jeremiah bought the field. He paid 17 shekels of silver for it. Now, a shekel of silver today is worth about $320. So 17 shekels by today's standards is about $5,440. For Jeremiah, who's in prison, I'm sure it was quite a bit of money for, frankly, what appears to be some worthless real estate deal. But you'll notice in verse 10, I signed and sealed the deed and called in witnesses and weighed out the silver on the scales. Then I took the deeds of purchase, both the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions and the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Masiah, in the sight of Hanamel, my uncle's son, and in the sight of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase before all the Jews who were sitting in the court of the guard. According to verses 10 to 12, Jeremiah signed the deed, he sealed the deed, he called the witnesses, they took the money, they put it on the scales. So obviously, even though he's in jail, they don't just do this on a handshake. I mean, they don't just say, well, let's shake hands on it and, and the land is yours. I mean, this is technical stuff. It's very legal stuff. 
In fact, there's a good format to follow here when you're making land deals or business deals. You agree on a price, then you weigh out the money, then you get a sales receipt, and then you get a deed that's written up, and then you have witnesses brought in that are actually monitoring this, and they sign and seal it. Then you get a duplicate deed that is also on file, and then you put the original deed sealed in a jar. You turn the deed over to the third party, whose name is Baruch, and then you do this all before legal witnesses. Now, in verses 13 to 15, we learn that I commanded Baruch in the presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed and put them in an earthenware jar that they may last a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards will again be bought in this land. In verses 13 to 15, Jeremiah told Baruch, you take these legal documents, put them in a jar. These are the same type of jars that the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in. These jars were known to be able to preserve things. It's kind of like a sealed up document that they put in these jars. And in verse 15, God reveals to Jeremiah, in the future, this land you've bought that doesn't appear to be worth anything right now is going to be very important because it will be once again inhabited by God's people. It will be blessed. There will be Jewish houses and fields and vineyards that will be in this land. And that's what verse 15 says. It'll be very valuable. So here's Jeremiah. Jeremiah is in jail. God sends him this land deal that God says this is going to mean something in the future. In other words, God is revealing to Jeremiah this land, this land is going to be restored to Israel. This land is going to be restored to you. This land is going to be restored to your family, Jeremiah. You've got a gold mine on your hands here. Now, Jeremiah is not purchasing this land for some land speculation investment. He's purchasing this land as a symbolic prophetic action that Israel will have a future land. Now, it's one thing to invest for God when things look positive. It's quite another to invest for God and move forward by faith when things don't seem so positive. Things for God's people were totally and completely depressing right at this point because God was chastising his people. But that did not negate the fact that the people of God still needed to take God's word seriously and by faith move forward. The fact of the matter is, many of the promises that we are looking to be fulfilled are futuristic. In other words, I would say this, much of the faithfulness that we demonstrate right now is based on the fact of what we expect is going to happen in the future. We lay up treasures in heaven right now because by faith we realize that, you know, the things right now aren't the way they ultimately are going to be. And that's exactly what Jeremiah was doing. But that brings us to the second part. Jeremiah prays concerning his situation. What a prayer this is. What a tremendous example of how to pray when you find yourself in a desperate circumstance. Here's a tremendous example of how to pray when doubt begins to creep into your mind. Now, after Jeremiah bought this land, it's pretty obvious he has some doubts about it. I mean, maybe he needed the money. I don't know. But he obviously made the deal and he bought the land. And it appears to me 
As he saw things shaping up with Babylon, taking the land, he began to wonder, you know, maybe I didn't do exactly the right thing. I don't know. God wasn't just speaking to him every day. And maybe his mind got fuzzy and he's drifting a little bit. Should I really done that? So what he does is he decides to pray and talk to God about it. It's pretty clear as we work our way through the prayer that he wanted some type of reassurance that he'd done the right thing in buying the land. And I think that's important to see because when you want to know what God is doing in your world, when you want to know what God is doing in your life, then go to God and pray and ask him. Now, as we analyze this prayer, the theology of the way Jeremiah prays is impressive. It's the theology that you would expect from a man of God. All of the things that Jeremiah prays are based on his understanding of the sovereignty of God. And I want to stress that point because don't ever bring God down to your level in prayer. When you bow your knee before God, you just acknowledge how great and glorious and sovereign he is. That's certainly what Jeremiah does here. There are 11 majestic acknowledgments that Jeremiah has about God. Number one, he acknowledges that God is the God of all creation. He has the power to do anything. Look at verse 17. Ah, Lord, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. He starts off by saying, God, I know about your power. You've made the heavens and the earth. And by the way, if you don't believe that, don't pray. If you don't believe God created the heavens and the earth, you're wasting your time. Because someone who's going to pray to God better come to God recognizing the greatness of God, the sovereignty of God, and the creation of God. And what Jeremiah does is he recognizes the power of God in his creation, which was on display before him every day of his life. And he comes to the conviction, nothing is too difficult for you, God. I know that. Just by looking at the heavens and the earth, I know nothing is too difficult for you. Any prayer that expects to move God is going to have to exalt God. Any prayer that expects to move God is going to have to exalt and acknowledge his power and greatness. And by the way, what this basically says when he says, I know nothing is too difficult for you, is God, I understand this about you. You never reach your limit of what you're capable of doing. You have tremendous power to do whatever you want to do. So there's acknowledgement number one. Number two, he acknowledges that God is a God who shows mercy to thousands of people. Verse 18, who shows loving kindness to thousands. That word loving kindness, a said, is a word that has to do with mercy of God. God has shown his mercy to thousands, millions, frankly. Jeremiah says thousands. Certainly he would have had in mind the thousands that were in Israel. He had seen God display mercy to many, many people in Israel. God is a merciful God. He's a kind God. He's given his mercy and grace to millions. He offers grace and mercy to hopeless people in hopeless situations if they'll turn to him. There's the deal. They have to turn to him. Now, the third acknowledgement is he acknowledges that God is the one who does repay iniquity. In verse 18, he says, but repays the iniquity of fathers to the bosom of their children after them. God does deal justly with people. And I want to point out the word iniquity. It's a word that speaks of perverse, evil sin that crosses normal lines. God monitors sin levels. 
And God is a God who watches how people react in regard to him and in regard to sin. And you take a family who mocks God, you take a family who hates God, you take a family who demeans God, God will hit that family with disaster. He'll hit it hard with disaster because he'll not be mocked. God is a God who does repay iniquity. The fourth acknowledgement is he's a God who does what is great and mighty. Verse 18, O great and mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name. God is a God a great God and a mighty God. He is the supreme ruler over everything. He is sovereign and the greatness and his might can also be understood in the fact that he's the Lord of hosts. And what that means is that God is sovereign not only over creation, but he's sovereign over everything, including all angelic beings and all forces that are in the universe. The fifth acknowledgement is God is the God who can give great counsel. Verse 19 says, great in counsel, God is omniscient. He has all knowledge of everything. I am convinced the greatest counseling book in the world is the scriptures. You get people to sit under the scriptures and go through every book of the Bible, a lot of problems will get cleaned up and cleared up. He's an all-knowing God. He knows what we need. Why do you think he's given us his word? He understands that. He knew that Hanamel was going to show up to Jeremiah to try to sell him this land. He told Jeremiah he was coming to do that. The sixth acknowledgement is he acknowledges that God is a God who's mighty indeed. This is a key theme of Jeremiah. He's acknowledging the amazing power of God. He is omnipotent. You cannot measure his power. The seventh acknowledgement is he acknowledges that God is the one who sees everything about everyone. Notice verse 19. Great in counsel, mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men. God says, everybody needs to know this. I see everything about everyone. I'm omnipresent. My eyes are open to all the ways of every human being. No one's going to get away with anything because I am a sovereign God. And Jeremiah is praying to God with that perspective of God, that God has his eye over everything that is going on in every person's life. The eighth acknowledgement is that he acknowledges that God is a God who does reward according to actions, giving to everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. God does reward people. He rewards faithfulness. He rewards unfaithfulness according to what a person does in regard to the word of God. And in regard to God, he will reward accordingly. He makes it very clear in both the Old and the New Testament that he can bless people, he can curse people, he can prosper people, he can chastise people. He rewards accordingly to how people respond to him and his word. The ninth acknowledgement is he acknowledges that God is a God who made a perpetual name for himself by what he did in delivering Israel from the Egyptians. Verse 20, he has set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, and even to this day, both in Israel and among mankind, and you've made a name for yourself as at this day, you brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and with wonders and with a strong hand, with an outstretched arm, and with great terror, and gave them this land which you swore to their forefathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. They came in and took possession of it. Now, he acknowledges that God is the one who just simply made a decision to go get Israel in the land of Egypt and by tremendous power bring them out of there. He said, you did awesome things. 
miraculous things. You displayed your power for your people, and you brought them to the land that you promised Abraham you were going to give them. The tenth acknowledgement is he acknowledges that God has sovereignly made calamity hit his own people because they wouldn't obey him. Verse 23, they have done nothing of all that you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made all this calamity come upon them. Behold, the siege ramps have reached the city to take it, and the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans, that is the Babylonians who fight against it, because of the sword, the famine, the pestilence, and what you have spoken has come to pass, and behold, you see it. He says, God, I understand you're the ones that have allowed all of this stuff to go down because we wouldn't obey your word. You've allowed all of these negative things to hit us because we refuse to listen to you. But then you come to the 11th acknowledgement. Now we get at where Jeremiah is going with this. He makes these awesome statements about the greatness of God. But then you get to this last one in verse 25 He acknowledges that God told him to buy this field, even though it's in the custody of the Babylonians. Notice verse 25. You said to me, O Lord God, buy for yourself the field with money and call in witnesses, although the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Now Jeremiah says, you know, God, here's what I'm wondering. I get the fact that you're sovereign. I get the fact that you control everything. I get the fact we deserve your judgment and chastisement. I get all of that about your character. You're omnipotent. You're omnipresent. You're omniscient. I get all of that about you. But what I'm wondering is, what are you doing? What are you doing by sending this guy in to me in jail to try to sell me this land? You apparently wanted me to buy the land because you told me to do it, but I don't quite understand it. So, the third part, verses 26 to 44, God answers Jeremiah's prayer. God answers his prayer, and he gives him six answers. The first one is in verse 27, Behold, I'm the Lord, the God of all flesh. Answer number one, God says, I'm the God of all flesh. I want you to know, I am the God who is in charge of all people who exist, no matter where they exist. I'm the one who sanctions life. I'm the one who sanctions the life of every human being, and I know where every human being lives. Answer number two, I am the God who can do anything. Verse 27, is anything too difficult for me? Now, the first time God said that in the Bible was when Abraham and Sarah, Sarah laughed at the thought that she was going to have a baby. When God came to her at her elderly years of life. You can read about this in Genesis 18. And she was questioning the fact that she wouldn't be able to have a baby. And so God said to them, is anything too difficult for me? That's the first time he said it. Jeremiah is questioning God on the issue of the fact that he has him buy this land. And Jeremiah had already said nothing was too difficult for God. God just repeats it. He just says to Jeremiah, remember, Jeremiah, nothing is too Difficult for me, like Jesus says, with God, all things are possible. That's what he said in Matthew. So he's reminding Jeremiah, you need to realize, I can do whatever I want to do. I'm God. The third answer he gives him is he says, I'm the one who's about to give Jerusalem to the Babylonians. He says in verse 28, therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm about to give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will take it. The Chaldeans who are fighting against this city 
will enter and set the city on fire and burn it with the houses where the people have offered incense to Baal on their roofs and poured out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. God says, I want you to know, Jeremiah, that I'm the one in charge of the Babylonians. I'm the one letting the Babylonians come in and take this city. I'm the one that's letting the Babylonians come in and burning this city down. I'm using my sovereignty to punish my own people. And I'm using the Babylonians as a weapon to punish my own people. And then he says, the reason I am doing this is because my people have been so idolatrous and evil over a long period of time. In verse 29, my people have offered incense to Baal on their roofs and poured out drink offerings to other gods and provoked me to anger. Indeed, the sons of Israel and the sons of Judah have been doing only evil in my sight from their youth. For the sons of Israel have been only provoking me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. Indeed, this city has been to me a provocation of my anger and my wrath from the day that I built it, even to this day, so that it should be removed from before my face. God said, the reason I'm doing this is because my people have been just involved in horrible, immoral idolatry. They didn't think I saw it, but he said, I'll tell you how bad it was. Verse 29, my own people went up and worshipped idols from their own rooftops. They went up on their own rooftops and they worshipped other gods. They promote me to anger. Now, it takes a lot to provoke God to anger. But by virtue of the fact he said they've been doing this from their youth, we know that there was plenty of time for them to turn from this evil, but they didn't do it. I warn us all with this statement. You put something first before God and do it for a long period of time and you'll anger God. And if you get God to an angry point, it won't be a pleasant life. So whatever the idol may be, yourself, money, sex, sports, career, God sees it. And over a long process of time, you make God angry if you continue to pursue that and you continue to put that as a high priority of life. And God says, that makes me angry. And he says to these people, you finally reached a point where I'm boiling over. And that's why I'm allowing all of this negative stuff to hit you. Now, his fifth answer is God says his own people have turned their backs on him. Verse 32, because of all the evil, the sons of Israel and the sons of Judah, which they've done to provoke me to anger, they, their kings, their leaders, their priests, their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they've turned their back to me and not their face, though I taught them teaching again and again, they would not listen and receive instruction, but they put their detestable things in the house, which is called by my name to defile it. They built the high places of Baal and are in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to cause their sons and daughters to pass through the fire to Molech, which I had not commanded them, nor had it entered my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. All of God's people were involved in this defection. Kings and leaders and priests and prophets and men and the people. These are the people of God. They turned their back on God. He said, I kept telling you what my word says. I kept proclaiming my word. You wouldn't listen. You would not respond to the teaching. You persisted in detestable things. You did things that you know are not pleasing to me. You brought in detestable things to the sacred house of God. You would not listen. You would not receive instruction. 
You did abominable things in places of worship. I'll tell you, it's horrible what's going on in churches. Horrible. It's an abomination to God to make a stage in a church look like a nightclub. It's evil stuff. We have a little principle here, and I'll just tell you something personal. We will not allow anything immoral or connected to any immoral thing in this church. In fact, we're so strong in that, if any computer ever would have on it, that would be the end of the individual, including myself. I put myself in that. If a computer in this church had anything immoral, because we will not bring anything evil or immoral into this church, nor, hopefully, into our homes either. Because that's what these people were doing. They were actually going home from these places of worship and getting involved in things that they know made God sick. They reached such a depraved level that the text says they were actually sacrificing their own children and killing them and burning them to idols. God said, I never had that thought in my mind. In fact, as Charles Feinberg said, he says, God makes a point here. I never even thought my people could reach this level of depravity. Now, by virtue of the fact that he understands everything and sees everything, he's obviously making a point here to humanity, and that is, I would have never thought my people were even capable of doing this, although he certainly knew that they were. As Mr. Miles used to say, when God's people get out of fellowship with God, they're capable of anything. Now, I'm sure when God has just given Jeremiah these answers, and remember, he's wondering, why did I buy the land? So I'm sure when he gave them these answers, Jeremiah's probably saying, I'm not sure why I asked God the question. He's probably thinking, I was kind of asking him a question about the land, which brings us to the sixth answer, and this is amazing grace. After God lays all that out, he says, but Jeremiah, I'm going to completely restore all of my blessings to my people. Notice verse 37. Behold, I'll gather them out of all the lands to which I've driven them in my anger, in my wrath, and in great indignation, and I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from them to do them good, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts So they will not turn away from me. I will rejoice over them to do them good and will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I brought all this great disaster on this people, so I'm going to bring on them all the good that I'm promising them. Fields will be bought in this land of which you say it is a desolation without man or beast. It is given into the hands of the Chaldean. Men will buy fields for money, sign and seal deeds, and call in witnesses in the land of Benjamin, in the environs of Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, and in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the lowland, in the cities of the Negev, for I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. In these verses, God makes an amazing futuristic prediction that to this point, even as of tonight, has not come true yet. It's not come true yet. Even though he would allow the Babylonians to come into Jerusalem and burn it down, he says, I'm one day going to regather my people from all the lands where I've scattered them. That hasn't happened yet. We're waiting for that to happen. He says, I'll go to the four corners of the earth. Jesus talked about that. 
And he'll use the angels, bring them all into this land. He would restore them, and God would be the God of his people. He would give them one heart. Verse 39 says, they'll fear me always. I'll put that in their heart and mind. I'll create a heart and mind in them. So they'll fear me. They always want to do what's right. They always want to do what's good. God says, one day rejoice over these people with my heart and my soul. And by the way, a great prayer for God's people to make is, Lord, put in my mind and heart the desire to always want to do what's good and right. What a prayer. Ask God to put into your heart and mind the desire to always want to do what's right and good because we have a heart that's deceitful. It's desperately wicked. It needs the grace of God, the transforming power of God to be able to do that. God said, I'll make a new covenant with my people. It'll be a new relationship. Just as I brought disaster on them, so I'm going to pour out my blessings on them. And according to verse 43, fields would again be purchased Fortunes are going to be restored one day. That whole land of Israel, including Jerusalem and Judah, will be a wonderful, normal life filled with the blessings of God. And that land you bought, Jeremiah, that land you bought while you were sitting in prison, will one day be legally yours. And I expect there will come a day in that kingdom where that document that Jeremiah signed here will guarantee he'll be right there in that spot. Because God always makes good on his promises. I want to leave us with six parting thoughts tonight. Number one, God does not forgive until people face their own sin. I am so sick of hearing this pathetic concept of forgiveness, we have to forgive them. We have to forgive them. Well, we have to forgive as God forgives, and God never forgives if people don't face the truth and face their sin. He doesn't just give people blanket checks of forgiveness. You have to face up to things. So understand that about God. God does not forgive until people face their own sin. Number two, when godless things are brought into God's sacred place of worship, it angers God. Sacred places of worship should be kept sacred places of worship. They should be a place where nothing's going to get in there that's evil, nothing's going to get in there that's idolatrous, nothing's going to get in there that's immoral. A sacred place of worship should be a sacred place of worship. If you bring something into a place that is supposedly a sacred place of worship, it angers God. Thirdly, nothing is too difficult for God to do. That point is stressed multiple times in the chapter. Fourthly, God will always bless faithful people even when he's chastising those unfaithful. The truth of the matter is God did have his hand on Jeremiah and he was watching over him and he was protecting him. In fact, we could say in this land deal, he's actually prospering him. Jeremiah wasn't looking for this. The guy shows up in prison to give him a land deal. Fifthly, God literally will fulfill all prophecy. The way God fulfills prophecy, don't ever forget this, is literally. And don't let anyone tell you any different. When God fulfills prophecy, he literally fulfills it. And finally, one day Israel will be in her promised land and she will be experiencing the blessings of God. You have God's word on it. Dr. Wolverd referred to this chapter and said it's one of the great chapters that promises one day Israel will have her land. That is Jeremiah 32. Well, our time is long gone. I want to thank you for coming. Good night. The Lord bless you.